Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. coronavirus pandemic has infected millions in the United States, disproportionately affecting black and brown communities. In this moving episode, Dr. Tamara Marshall will speak directly to those most affected by the pandemic. Dr. Marshall spent 10 years in academic medicine at the University of Chicago and Sinai Children's Hospital. She transitioned to the pharmacy industry in 2008, where she has served as a medical science liaison for the past 12 years. Recently, she has been a powerful advocate for equitable and quality healthcare. Dr. Marshall will address rumors about the vaccine and answer questions about COVID-19 in black and brown communities. This episode is part of the COVID-19 Vaccine Explained series. Our guest host is Dr. Melissa Hogan, Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the third of our four-part series on the COVID-19 vaccine. My name is Melissa Hogan, and I am the Dean of the College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy here at Roosevelt University. In each session, we discuss a different aspect of the COVID-19 vaccine. Our first session featured Dr. Robert Sizer and was entitled, From Trials to Vials. Last week, Dr. Nikoshevich addressed many common myths and misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccine. Our final session will take place on March 3rd with Dr. Jason Allegro, who will share his experiences as an infectious disease pharmacist caring for COVID-19 patients. In a moment, we'll be joined by special guest, Dr. Tamara Marshall, who will discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted communities of color. All of the sessions are streamed live from noon to one and will also be available on the Roosevelt University and Justice for All podcast, which can be found on the RU website and wherever you listen to podcasts. During our live broadcast today, you'll have the opportunity to ask questions. Feel free to type them into the chat and we'll save time to address them at the end of our discussion. I would now like to introduce today's guest, Dr. Tamara K. Marshall. Dr. Marshall earned her Bachelor of Science in Human Nutrition Pre-Med from Howard University and her medical degree from the Chicago Medical School. Her postgraduate training was in pediatric medicine at the University of Chicago Children's Hospital. She went on to complete a primary care academic fellowship at Michigan State University. Tamara spent 10 years in academic medicine as an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago and Sinai Children's Hospital. Tamara transitioned to the pharmaceutical industry in 2008, serving as a medical science liaison for the past 12 years. This position allowed her to be an advocate for multiple sclerosis and infantile spasms, research and treatment by interacting with clinicians who specialize in these conditions. This role afforded her the opportunity to practice the science of medicine 
to be an advocate for the early diagnosis and management of these conditions, and to continue to enjoy her first true passion, which is teaching. Tamara is a native Chicagoan who is active in teaching women and children to enjoy life in a healthy and fit environment, advocating for underrepresented communities for equitable and quality healthcare, and most recently, proactively educating communities of color on every facet of the coronavirus pandemic, including dispelling myths and misinformation on the coronavirus vaccine. Tamara lives her life through her favorite quote by the late Honorable Shirley Chisholm. You don't make progress by standing on the sidelines, whimpering and complaining. You make progress by implementing ideas. Dr. Marshall is clearly living this ideal. She is going to share with us a discussion that she has presented over 40 times for thousands of people. She is passionate about educating people about the pandemic and the vaccine, and we are grateful to have her with us today. Dr. Marshall, welcome. Thank you. I know you're going to talk more about this later, but before you begin, can you tell us briefly what inspired you to create this presentation? I was um, contemplating, I'm really torn um, back in the spring because of the George Floyd killing. And I was torn between, my sisters and I, we were actually torn between getting out in the streets of Chicago to protest with the Black Lives Matter movement, um, knowing, and me knowing what I know about science and medicine, I knew that it really was not safe to do so in the midst of a pandemic. So, you know, I pretty much contemplated and I was really torn emotionally about what to do about this. And I decided that I have a lane in which I can um, have my voice heard. And I decided to start educating people on the coronavirus itself. And it really just started with my family, um, family members that are all over the United States. And it started with educating them about the coronavirus pandemic itself. And then later on, when I knew that the vaccine was being developed, I had a feeling that this would be a problem, um, meaning that communities of color would be hesitant in trusting the science, trusting the data. And it evolved into me making this presentation, first initially just to talk and have a discussion with my family members, but then later it's evolved to, well, I'm invited to speak to different organizations across the U.S. I'm so happy that you're able to share this presentation with us today. And I will turn it over to you in a moment, but first I know we're going to start with a disclaimer. The information on this presentation is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All content, including text, graphics, images, and information contained on or available through this presentation is for general information purposes only. Healthcare Equity Matters LLC makes no representation and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of information contained on or available through this presentation. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from or through this presentation with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking medical treatment because of something you have read on or accessed through this presentation. And with that, we can begin. Dr. Marshall, the screen is yours. All right, thank you. I do wanna welcome the students, faculty and staff of Roosevelt University and I really thank you for inviting me to your program today. With that, there's quite a bit of information to cover and I wanna go ahead and get started. I'm going to introduce my introduction slide. This is one of the most impactful and significant introduction slides that I've ever created. And what I want you to know are some significant numbers that are on this slide. We're gonna start with the upper right-hand corner 
That number, greater than 502,000, that represents the number of deaths to date that the United States has surpassed due to the coronavirus. And that number, we crossed this threshold on Monday. Another important number down here on the bottom left-hand corner, greater than 28 million cases. This, is, this number represents the number of cases in the United States alone. And when we look at both of these numbers, greater than 28 million cases of the coronavirus, greater than 502,000 deaths due to the coronavirus, we know that the United States leads the world, not just developed countries, but we also lead underdeveloped countries. In fact, we're just above, in first place, above Brazil, and we lead them in deaths by greater than 200,000. So although we are proud of the medical technology and science advancement in the United States, these two numbers are nothing that we should be proud of. Another important number up here in the left upper corner, greater than three times. African-Americans and Hispanic Americans are three times more likely to die due to the coronavirus and greater than four times more likely to be hospitalized, which means that's a serious case of the coronavirus. Another important factor and one that my audience should be really interested in, the 20 to 49 year old age group. This is the number one age group that spreads the virus 70% of the time. So this is the bulk of where the bulk of our transmission occurs in the United States, the 20 to 49 year old age group. Now that could be a lot of cases that are asymptomatic, meaning people may not know that they're walking around transmitting the virus because they don't have any symptoms. But it also can mean these are people who do have symptoms, but they've come in contact with other people prior to them being diagnosed with the coronavirus. My last important number is 50%. The Kaiser Foundation did a study a couple of months ago, and it was found that African-Americans, 50% of African-Americans will not be taking the coronavirus or are hesitant to take the coronavirus. So when you think about these significant numbers, you'll see what all of these numbers, you'll be able to put them into context as I go along throughout the slides. What we'll go through today, I'll walk through defining healthcare disparities. We'll look at the impact of COVID-19 on the communities of color. We'll also go back in time and look at historical medical exploitation and experimentation and why that may be a level of mistrust and vaccine hesitancy in communities of color. We'll also answer the question, why is there an emergency use approval or authorization of the COVID-19 vaccines? I'll also walk you through an example of the vaccine development and approval timeline, as well as look at an example of the phase three clinical trial numbers from Moderna. And lastly, I'll discuss for you dispelling the most common myths, the misinformation and the disinformation. So I urge everybody to sit back, relax, and enjoy the presentation. Now, let's start with the social determinants of health. This is used to describe in the public health world our economic and social conditions that influence an individual or a group's health status. Now, these are, these are things that communities are born into, where they live, where they work, where they learn, and where they grow. And sadly, they can be negative for some communities of colors because we know that poverty limits access to healthy foods, access to safe neighborhoods, quality education, and quality healthcare service. So these social determinants of health contribute a wide range to health disparities and equities. Now, when we define health disparities, 
we can we know that these are specific differences in health that are closely linked with social, economic, educational, and our environmental disadvantages. We know that groups that are affected disproportionately have greater obstacles to their health based on their racial or ethnic groups. And we also know that communities of color with these health disparities, it results in reduced life expectancy, poor quality of life, loss of economic opportunities, and perceptions of injustice. For example, we know that heart disease and stroke are the first and fourth leading causes of death respectively in the United States and that black Americans have a higher death rate than whites, Hispanics and Asian Americans respectively. We also know that American Indians and Alaska natives continue to die at higher rates in a number of chronic diseases such as liver disease, diabetes, suicide and lower respiratory diseases. And that cancer has surpassed heart disease as the number one killer among Hispanics in that one in three of the Latino population will be diagnosed with cancer. And when we look at diabetes, we can look at the Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders who are significantly more likely to have been diagnosed with diabetes compared to their white counterparts. And so look deeper into chronic diseases that are most common in African-American communities. We know that high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke are the leading causes across all age groups of cases. And we also know that African-Americans are more likely to die at an earlier age from all of these cases, whether it's the younger age group, 18 to 34, African-Americans are more likely to die, or all the way to the end of the spectrum, the 50 to 64-year-old age group, where African-Americans die at earlier ages from all of these causes. So when we look at the increased risk for mortality or death due to the coronavirus pandemic, all we need to do is look at what these disproportionate healthcare disparities that already exist in our communities. So we add to that the coronavirus pandemic. And the pandemic has brought to light these significant health inequities that have existed in our society for decades. So when we look at these chronic diseases, cancer and chronic kidney disease, heart conditions, sickle cell disease, diabetes, we know that these are the conditions that communities of color are disproportionately affected by and that the increased risk from the coronavirus increases the severe cases due to these underlying disparities, as well as increased rates of death. And that's shown here. We can see that on this slide, COVID inequities by death, all populations of color experienced higher nationwide death rates in 2020 due to the coronavirus and new data that just emerged this week. Life expectancy reduction overall is decreased by one year for the majority of the population. However, for African-Americans, the life reduction expectancy is two years in the African-American community and life expectancy reduction is dropped by three years in the Latino X community. So when we look at, again, other numbers of African-Americans and their percentage of the population and the proportion of deaths that affect them, we can look first off to Chicago. We know that Chicago has an African-American population of 32%. Yet 67% of the coronavirus deaths were afflicted on African-Americans. And then our neighbors to the north, Milwaukee County, African-Americans are 26% of the population, yet 73% of the deaths due to coronavirus. And we can see this trend in other states and cities, such as Louisiana, 
African-Americans, 32% of the population, yet 70% of the deaths. And then in New York City in Michigan, where African-Americans are 22% and 14% of the population, yet 28% and 41% of the deaths. So I want you to think about this. We have a disproportionate burden of the coronavirus disease that has significantly brought to light pre-existing disproportionate healthcare inequities um, suffered by communities of color. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we save ourselves and our communities, our loved ones, our family members, our neighbors, our friends, how do we save them from the coronavirus while at the same time having this mistrust and hesitancy with the medical and science community? I point to you some examples. For example, we know about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment of 1932 to 1972, where over 600 African-American men were enticed to enroll, enroll in the study that was sponsored by the U.S. government under the pretense that they would receive free medical care and free death insurance. Well, these men enrolled in the study. However, when penicillin was found to be a cure in 1947, penicillin was withheld from these men and they were not treated for their syphilis. Instead, syphilis was studied as a natural disease progression. We can also point to Henrietta Lacks, a young African-American woman in Baltimore, Maryland, who reported to John Hopkins University with an abdominal mass, was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And before she died at the age of 31, her cancerous cells were taken from her and used all over the world as HeLa cells for genetics research, other medical research, vaccine and medication research without her consent or the consent of her family. We also can point to the exploitation of the reproductive rights of poor Puerto Rican women who were enrolled without their consent in the earliest clinical trials for birth control pills. Many of them suffered adverse events, effects, and many of them also died. We can also look to the Native American community where the US government along with the US Indian Health Service and white male physicians sterilized these Native American women without their consent as they reported for routine medical care or delivery of a child. So these are just examples that I point to you that communities of color can acknowledge and have a right, historically speaking, to distrust the medical community and scientific community as well. And although I can't highlight every example, I can recommend the medical apartheid book by um, Harriet A. Washington. And you can read more about these examples of the dark history of medical experimentation. But let me go back to that question I asked you at the beginning of this slide. Knowing what we know, about how the coronavirus pandemic has affected communities of color by way in, by disproportionately um, killing communities of color and disproportionately affect, affecting as far as disease burden and severity of the disease. So we know that. Well, at the same time, struggling with the burden of knowing what the historical medical exploitation stories are. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we save our communities from the coronavirus, but also take advantage of advanced medical science and technology? We all can answer that on a personal basis. I answer that question for myself by speaking out, by delivering presentations to audiences such as yourself, by enrolling in the vaccine clinical trial 
And so what I came to grips with over the summer in the midst of my struggles on whether I would join the protests in the streets of Chicago, I came to the grips that the risk was not beneficial for me to be out there in the midst of a pandemic. So therefore, I decided to use my voice, stay in my lane, and talk about the science and the data and make sure that I educated communities of color on the coronavirus as well as the coronavirus vaccine. With that, we're going to answer the question now. Why is there emergency use authorization? Why is there an urgent need to have vaccines that are approved? Well, remember those numbers at the beginning of the slide. Significant morbidity, meaning significant serious illness where you're hospitalized and maybe on a ventilator. Significant increase in mortality or death rate and that we've crossed the greater than 502,000 threshold. We've also seen this pandemic evaporate jobs, devastate families by loss, cancel our celebrations, weddings, birthdays, and graduations, deplete our healthcare workers, upend our schools, filling up our hospitals. And so the virus has revealed and amplified the structural racism reflected across our society by way of laying out a disproportionate burden by way of diseases as well as deaths. Because as a reminder, African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans are 2.8 times more likely to die from the coronavirus. Native Americans, 2.6 times more likely to die. And Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, 2.3 times more likely to die. So the answer to that question is right here laid before you. There's an emergency use approval of currently two vaccines so that we can defeat and end the pandemic and end the suffering and end the deaths that communities, black and brown communities have suffered with. So I'm going to walk you through the timeline of the vaccine development. And I'm going to start with Dr. Kizmikia Corbett. Dr. Kizmikia Corbett is at the National Institutes of Health working under the direction of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Corbett leads her team and has led her team in the messenger RNA vaccine development for the past six years. I also want to point out that in the clinical trials, 37% and 23% of the volunteers are from communities of color, Moderna and Pfizer respectively. For example, we have Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, an infectious disease expert and physician at the George Washington University she enrolled in the clinical trial to be able to answer questions for her patients, to serve as a role model and mentor for her patients that are hesitant about getting the vaccine. And then there's Dr. Chris Purnell of New Jersey, a health equity physician who had a very personal reason for joining the clinical trial. Her dad passed away from the coronavirus and her sister is right now experiencing and in the category of a long hauler, meaning she still has long-term effects six months after having been diagnosed from the coronavirus. And it was for these very personal reasons that Dr. Purnell joined the clinical trial, as well as to be a mentor and role model for her patients. And then we have anchor Dawn Baker of Savannah, Georgia. Dawn Baker was reporting on numerous stories regarding the vaccine clinical trials. And she did a piece on the lack of enrollment of communities of color and specifically African-Americans. And therefore she decided to join the clinical trial and Dawn became the first person to receive the vaccine in the clinical trial. And then there's myself, yours truly. I alluded to the fact that I was torn in the midst of the George Floyd killing whether or not to get out there and protest with the Black Lives Matter movement. And instead I decided to use my scientific and medical expertise hat, stay in my lane 
and talk about the coronavirus pandemic, as well as educate communities of color on the vaccine. And one of the other ways I did that was by enrolling in the Moderna clinical trial. And I'll talk more about that later. Another person representing community of color is my friend, Pastor Carlton Francis of St. Louis, Missouri. Pastor Carlton entered the Moderna trial and he entered the trial so that he could show his congregation that they could trust the vaccine, that the data is sound, and that if they had any questions, they could always come to him. Now, when we see the beginning of the vaccine development, we see the representation of communities of color in the phase three vaccine trials of Pfizer and Moderna. We next go, after we have all of the data reviewed, we next go to the FDA. Now the FDA is responsible for the yes or the no of the approval process. They're the ones responsible for voting on whether or not the vaccine can be used in an emergency. So there was a special committee convened in December that included Dr. Oveta Fuller, a virologist from the University of Michigan, Dr. James Hildreth, president of Meharry Medical College. I listened to both of these public reviews of both companies' data in mid-December, and I was quite pleased. I was encouraged, and I really walked away with a positive vibe because I knew that Dr. Fuller and Dr. Hildreth were representing communities of color. They asked the right questions. You could tell that they had our best interests at heart. And so I was quite pleased to see them on the review committee. But the vaccine does no good if it's actually approved, but stays in the refrigerator. We need people to receive the vaccine. We need people to have the vaccine injected into their arms. That's the only way we're gonna decrease the transmission. That's the only way we're gonna end the pandemic and get back to our celebrations, get back to our social gatherings, our birthday parties, our, weather, our weddings and get kids back in school. So among some of those people of the vaccine recipients, there's a critical care nurse, Sandra Lindsay of New York. And I highlight Sandra because she was the first person to receive the vaccine outside of the clinical trial. And then we can look to former Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, who also accepted both of his doses of the vaccine in public as well as to show that we can actually trust the data and the science. And then there's a media mogul, we all know Tyler Perry, who did a special on BET, highlighting and asking the experts from Emory University and Grady, Grady Hospital in Atlanta to highlight some of the questions that concern communities of color. Now, Tyler Perry did not start his interview process with the thought that he would be receiving the vaccine. It could have gone either way. He actually went on television to record his questions have them answered, and then make a decision in public or national TV to decide whether or not he would receive the vaccine. He was satisfied with the answers that he received, and therefore he elected to take the vaccine as well. And then we have our Vice President Kamala Harris, who also took the vaccine in public, and she received both doses in public as well. So I show you all of these people to let you know that we're represented from the beginning of the vaccine development process. And even behind the scenes were represented because we can look at the co-chair of President Biden's COVID-19 task force, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith of Yale University. Now, many people may not even know that she exists, but she does. She's the person behind the scenes. She's the person giving the scientific expertise to our nation's leading officers and our president and our vice president. So when you sit back and just take in this slide, just take a few minutes to look at this slide. This is not the Tuskegee syphilis study. 
This is not the story of Henrietta Lacks or the story of the Puerto Rican women whose reproductive rights were exploited, or even the story of the Native American women who were sterilized in mass. What you see before you is that communities of color are represented, and you cannot say the name for any of those prior medical exploitation or experimentations where the rights of people, communities of color were exploited. So this is one of the probably most impactful slides that I'll show you today, but I want you to think about it. And then you ask yourself, how can you save your community? How can you look at the data with an open mind? How can you answer questions for your family and your friends? So with that, we're going to, I'm going to ask you to put on your scientific hats and I'm going to walk you through the science of the coronavirus vaccine. So before you, you have the microscopic view of the coronavirus on the left here and the spike protein that sticks out. All of us know the picture. We very well versed on what the coronavirus looks like. We know those pieces that stick up that form what we call the crown are the spike protein. Now, the way the virus enters our cells, it attaches to the human cell receptor on the right and then it invades into our cell. Once it's in our cell, it replicates or grows in number, and that's how we become infected. So when we look at this, we know that the ideal vaccine targets the spike protein here. It targets the spike protein to build up, activate that immune system to make those antibodies so that if we come in contact with the natural disease of the coronavirus, our antibodies are there they remember the recipe to the spike protein and they fight the virus off. We can look at that whole picture here as the full coronavirus. Now, the vaccine for messenger RNA technology, both Moderna and Pfizer, do not use this virus. What they use is a recipe or instructions to the spike protein shown here. And I'm gonna ask my friend Deanna to show you a a minute and a half animation that will hopefully highlight for you and give you that visual picture of how the mechanism of the mRNA technology is developed. It all started with isolation of the virus from an infected patient in China. The coronavirus was sequenced and its genetic information was uploaded to a public database. Working together, scientists at the NIH and Moderna identify the sequence for a key protein on the surface of the virus called the spike protein as a good vaccine candidate. The instructions for making the spike protein were then encoded into an instruction molecule called mRNA, which could be administered directly to patients as a vaccine. The vaccine is injected just like other vaccines. The mRNA is taken to immune cells where it instructs cells to make copies of the spike protein as if the cells had been infected by the coronavirus. Other immune cells shown here as red and orange figures are then able to learn about the spike protein and develop ways to protect the person if they ever come into contact with the actual coronavirus. What makes this approach different is that you don't need to make the virus itself to make a vaccine a time-consuming and intensive process. Instead, you use the information from the virus and administer the information directly to the patient. Essentially, the patient makes their own vaccine. This cuts out the middleman. Using this approach, NIH and Moderna were able to go from sequence to a vaccine ready for human testing in record time, just 42 days. Hopefully, um, 
that sheds some light on the actual mechanism of action. I'll just reiterate and just kind of go over that process one more time. Again, we see the full virus here. The recipe is made with the development of a recipe to the spike protein. Now, once the spike protein instructions or recipe is inserted into our cells, think of a um, sunny side up egg where the white part of the egg is the cytoplasm. That's where the instruction or the messenger RNA instruction is sitting in your cell. It does not go to the nucleus or the yolk of the egg. That's where the DNA sits. And at no time does the messenger RNA instructions replicate or interact with any type of your DNA because it does not go inside the nucleus or the egg yolk. It stays in the white portion of the egg or the cytoplasm. And so once that messenger RNA is sitting there in the cytoplasm, your immune system is activated. And by way of the T cells and the B cells, this memory is created. The messenger RNA, once that immune response is built up, the messenger RNA protein is actually degraded by enzymes and it's cleared from your body immediately after that immune system is built up. Now, if your body happens to come in contact with the coronavirus disease, the B cells remember that they've seen that spike protein before. And they say, oh, I've seen this before. And they create the antibodies to fight off the disease. And that's really the mechanism of the messenger RNA technology. Now, let's look at what's comprised. What's, what is the vaccine comprised of? We know in the middle here, we have the messenger RNA protein, our instruction or our recipe. It's surrounded by a lipid particle or really just a fat layer and more on that in a minute. What's also in the vial with the messenger RNA protein is water, lab table sugar, and FDA approved buffers. Now these buffers are really salts and they all sit in here to form this lipid nanoparticle. And there's a couple of reasons why that lipid particle is needed. First, it's needed to allow the messenger RNA to enter our cells. It's needed to maintain the structure of the messenger RNA so that they don't clump together. It's needed to control the pH and stabilize it, as well as to stabilize the temperature. So again, the messenger RNA sits in the middle of a lipid of fat, a layer of fat. The layer of fat is controlled and regulated and stabilized by these FDA-approved salts or buffers. Now, what's not in the vial? There's no preservatives. There's no antibiotics. There's no other adjuvants. All the components are rapidly cleared. And most importantly, there's no virus. I'm going to repeat that. There's no preservatives, no antibiotics, no adjuvants, and no virus. Remember, what's inserted is the recipe or instructions to the spike protein. This is unlike any other vaccine. This is not like our influenza vaccine. It's not like the shingles vaccine or chicken pox or MMR. Those use some pieces of either killed or live virus. This technology is an advancement and it does not use any part of the virus. And more on that when we get to the Q&A session. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Now, 
we're going to get to the fun part. I'm going to walk you through an example of the phase three clinical trial, and I'm using the Moderna numbers, although the Pfizer numbers are quite similar. So let's look at the two groups. The volunteers are divided into two groups. We call them arms, but we can say groups or arms. There's a vaccine arm or group, and this is the group that receives the messenger RNA vaccine. And my friend, Pastor Carlton of St. Louis, happened to be in the vaccine group. And then we can look at the placebo group, also greater than 15,000 people in the placebo group. Now, the placebo group does not receive the vaccine. The placebo group receives saline or salt water only. They're the control group. And I later found out that I was a part of the placebo group. Now, at the time that all of the volunteers, in, in the case of Moderna, greater than 30,000, in the case of Pfizer, greater than 40,000. So when all of these 70,000 people are enrolled in the clinical trial, you don't know which group you're in. It's a one-to-one -one randomization that's done by the computer. And the volunteers don't know which group they're in. We go about our everyday lives. And one of the most important things that we actually do is answer the safety questions. So we're monitored for the safety, for our side effects, to make sure that um, we have not been exposed to coronavirus or to see if we actually have symptoms of the coronavirus. And if we do, the study physician here is responsible for diagnosing the coronavirus cases. And once coronavirus cases are diagnosed in the phase three clinical trial, they contribute to what we call the vaccine efficacy. And I'll show you what I mean. In the case of the vaccine group, remember, this is the group that received the messenger RNA vaccine. 11 people from this group of 15,000 plus were diagnosed with the coronavirus. And then when we look to the placebo group, remember, this is the group I was in. This is the group that received salt water or saline and not the vaccine. 185 people were diagnosed with the coronavirus. So in order to obtain the efficacy, you take the total number of people diagnosed, 196, is divided by that placebo number of 185. And for Moderna, you get a 94% efficacy rate. Similar numbers with Pfizer, they had greater than 40,000 people, greater than 19,000 in each arm, vaccine group, placebo group. They had 170 total positive for coronavirus and 162 from the placebo group because they got a 95% efficacy rate. Let's look at this 185 positive cases down here in the placebo group a little closer. In this group here, 30% of the 185 people that were positive from that placebo group, 30% had a severe case, meaning 30% were hospitalized due to their coronavirus. And sadly, there was one death. Remember, this is the group that did not receive the messenger RNA vaccine. When we go up here to the top, the 11 people in the vaccine group, there were no severe cases and there were no deaths at all. So the 94% rate not only is a high efficacy rate, but it also decreases. Even if you happen to get the vaccine, it decreases the risk of having a severe case. And when we identify and define severe case, that means a hospitalization. So in the vaccine group, 11 people positive in the Moderna trial of greater than 15,000 in the vaccine arm, no severe cases and no death. Let's look at the volunteers. Who were the volunteers that comprised the trial? Well, in the case of Moderna, there were greater than, there were 30,000 participants, 11,000 represented communities of color, greater than 6,000 Hispanic American 
and greater than 3,000 African-Americans. And we'll look at this number a little closer. When we look at the two arms, African-Americans made up 10% of the vaccine arm and 10% of the placebo arm. However, the population percentage of African-Americans in the United States is 13%. And the goal for Moderna was to surpass that 13% because we know that African-Americans are disproportionately represented with cases of the coronavirus. So Dr. Fauci was adamant about surpassing 13%. And although it does show that the goal of 13% was not reached, it's still a positive number. And it's a positive number for this reason alone. When we look at the average percentage of U.S. clinical trials, African-Americans are represented at a rate of about 5 to 6%. So this taught the medical community and scientific world something about recruitment of African-Americans into clinical trial. It can't be a passive process. And they really have to acknowledge in the design of the study that African-Americans or, or other persons of color will be recruited and take steps to do that. So although the 13%, the goal fell short, 10% is quite positive that African-Americans are represented at that proportion because it's much higher than the average representation of clinical trials. When we look at the Hispanic Latino community, they're represented in the vaccine arm of 21%, in the placebo arm at 21%, and the goal was surpassed. The community, Hispanic and Latinx community, represent 18% of the U.S. population, and so that goal was reached. However, we can applaud the goals of African Americans and Hispanic Americans, but we still have work to do when we look at the other communities of color that are disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, and that's American Indian, Alaska Native, and Hawaiian as Pacific Islanders, they are not represented very well at a rate of less than 1%. So although communities of color are represented in clinical trial, there's still work to be done in other clinical trials as well to get everyone equal representation. And you might ask, why is that important? Well, it's important because you want to look at who's most disproportionately affected by the coronavirus disease. And we know that communities of color are disproportionately represented. So you need a clinical trial where you know the investigative agent, in this case, the vaccine, you want to make sure that it's effective against those communities that are most affected by the virus. And so you want that representation, not only racially and ethnically, but also by way of comorbid or underlying etiologies. So the volunteers in this group also were people represented, people who had underlying conditions or those disparate comorbid conditions that I talked about at the beginning of the presentation. So we know in the greater than 18 to 65-year-old age group, 17% in that group had an etiology of an underlying chronic condition. And then when we look at the greater to 65-year-old age group, because this number was a little smaller, there were people in this group as well who represent persons, not only are they elderly people, but they also have underlying conditions. And the vaccine efficacy improved it was actually higher than the general study population when they looked at the 6,700 of people who the majority of these people, 42%, had underlying conditions. The vaccine was 96% effective. Now, let's look at how well the vaccine was tolerated and some of the safety side effects. All U.S. clinical trials, one of the regulations of the FDA is to report. You have to report side effects and so there's no different from the Moderna and Pfizer. Both companies, both clinical trials have reported the most common side effects. And in the case of the design, if greater than 2% of the population reported a side effect, it's included as the most common. For example, when we look at the vaccine, the most common side effect in the Moderna trial and in Pfizer 
is pain at the injection site. We can also look to fatigue, headache, muscle aches, joint aches, chills, nausea and vomiting, tenderness and swelling under the arm, fever, swelling at the injection site, and redness at the injection site. Now, this list does not mean that every person who receives the vaccine will experience all of these symptoms. That's not the case at all. It's reported because greater than 2% of the volunteers, in the case of the 15,000 plus people that were in the vaccine arm, greater than 2% of those people reported these symptoms and injection site pain happened to be the most common. Now I encourage everyone, if you do receive the vaccine, to contribute to science by reporting your side effects. And you can do that by going to the vsafe.cdc.gov. And most of the sites that are offering the vaccine will also give you the information on vsafe. And this is a nice way to help the scientists monitor all of the safety and the side effects. And it's really just done through an app. You don't have to talk to anyone. It takes two seconds to actually complete. So I encourage everyone to actually do that. Now, not only are side effects monitored in all U.S. clinical trials, but also deaths. So deaths have to have to be monitored in every clinical trial. And if another important role for the study physician is to determine not only the cause of death, but was the investigative agent, in this case, the vaccine, was the death due to that particular agent or vaccine in our case. So when we look at the Moderna deaths, there were six deaths in the vaccine arm here. And the causes of death are listed. It's up to, and the study physician determines what the cause of death is and is it related to the vaccine. In all of the six cases, there's a cause of death and it is not related to the um, six cases. Now, there were also deaths in the placebo arm or the saline arm. There were seven deaths. And again, the study physician has to document the underlying etiology of that death. And obviously, there's not a cause that you can relate to the vaccine because this is the group that did not receive the vaccine. However, um, the deaths still have to be reported. Now, remember, in the 185 positive cases of the placebo group, remember I pointed out that there was a person who died from the coronavirus, and that person is listed here under the placebo group and counted it among those seven deaths. Now, this is the Moderna data. When we look at the Pfizer data, they have six deaths. There were two people in the vaccine arm that died. One person died from arterial sclerosis. Another person died of cardiac arrest. And the other four deaths were all in the placebo arm. So when we look at across the board, greater than 70,000 volunteers between the two trials, there were eight deaths that were in the vaccine arm. The study physician made a determination. All of the deaths were due to an underlying etiology. And remember when I showed you the demographics of who are the volunteers in the trial, and a lot of the volunteers are elderly and also have underlying or comorbid conditions. And so all of these eight deaths are attributable to an etiology that a person actually suffered from prior to being in the clinical trial. Now, let's look at both vaccines. We can look at the two approved COVID-19 vaccines to date. We have Moderna and Pfizer. We know that they were both approved in mid-December. They have similar efficacies, and I walked you through those numbers by showing you the example of the clinical trial. We have Moderna at 94.5%. We have Pfizer at 95%. They both require two doses, and this is where they differ. Moderna requires 28 days apart, Pfizer 21 days apart. Another difference are the storage. 
Moderna requires refrigeration of minus 13 to plus five. So it can be in your regular freezer or refrigerator, whereas Pfizer requires the special ultra cold storage of minus 112 to minus 76. We can also look at differences of who the volunteers were represented by age. In the Moderna trial, 18 years and up. In the Pfizer trial, 16 years and up. So for parents out there who have teenagers, 16 and 17 years, this is the only time I recommend finding out which vaccine is at which site. The reason you need to do that is because Pfizer is the only one approved for 16 and 17 year olds currently. So you would need to know in the case of a teenager, which vaccine, um, because Pfizer is the only one currently approved for that age group, whereas Moderna is 18 years and up. Now I'm going to answer a lot and dispel some of the myths and disinformation. And during this process, the majority of your questions will be answered. However, after this particular slide, I'm going to go back to Melissa and we're going to start the Q&A process. So first, let me give you a status of vaccine production. This is important because what I want you to see is what's coming up down the pipeline. So we already know that Moderna and Pfizer are the two currently approved vaccines that are in use now in the United States. We also know that Johnson & Johnson is set to have their data reviewed on Friday this week, February 26th, by the FDA. So they'll go through the same process of that special committee, looking at the data, asking the company questions, and then taking a vote on whether or not to approve it as an emergency use. There are three other companies in different phases of their development. We have AstraZeneca, we have GSK Sanofi, and we have Novavax. Those will be coming up for their review. They haven't submitted any applications yet, so we can look for those in late spring probably to do that. But right now, coming up this week is the Johnson 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 Jansen review with the FDA. Now, when we look at our recommendation in vaccine allocation, because we're in Illinois, I'm just going to highlight Illinois. And I really encourage people to start making a plan of action because it's going to take all of us together to actually end the pandemic. Young people, older people, and everybody in between. It's going to take all of us to really work together to not only prevent transmission, but prevent all of these deaths as well. So right now in Illinois, we're currently in the 1B phase. That means greater than 65 years and essential workers. That includes our educational staff and staff, our first responders, such as the EMTs, police, women and men, fire officers, postal mail carriers, food service workers, correctional and homeless shelter, residents, and staff. We also have in 1B are people who are in the 18 to 64, or in the case of Pfizer, 16 to 64 age group, but have an underlying or etiology comorbid condition. So all of these people are represented in 1B. I encourage everyone to start off. You can ask your primary care physician. You can go on the internet to the Illinois Department of Public Health or Chicago Department of Public Health to get some direction. But please don't wait to the last minute, even though this may not be your phase that you actually fit into. It may be the phase of your grandmother or your mom or your aunt or your uncle or a neighbor who you may want to assist because they may not use the internet. So make sure that you go on the site and just start making a plan for people that you care about or for, and for yourself as well. Now, I'm going to walk through the most common myths and questions. I'm going to start out with one of the most common is the vaccine. This is one of the most common concerns. The vaccine was created too fast. And it does seem like that. But what I'll tell you what the fast part was, was the approval. And remember, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So in order to defeat the pandemic, 
we had to have a vaccine that came out that has safe data, that has efficacy, and that is approved after the two and a half month of data review, as opposed to six months or nine months. So there were no steps skipped. There was a phase one, phase two clinical trial. There was the safety data and efficacy review by the FDA. What is skipped and what most people don't realize is that it takes a long time for marketing and advertisement. And that's usually what comes after an, a regular review. Remember, this is we're in the middle of the pandemic. So this was an urgent review process, but the science was not skipped. The other fact is that the messenger RNA technology not only has it been in existence that Dr. Kizmiki Corbett has been working on for six years, but the technology has been in existence for the past 20 years. And all the teams, both companies, all that they needed to do, both Pfizer and Moderna, was to get the instructions to the virus, the code of the spike protein from China. Once they received that recipe or those instructions, they already had the technology built that has been worked on for the past 20 years. So it wasn't created as far as science fast. There was a different step because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And what was done that's not usually done is an emergency use authorization. I'm going to answer these next three all in one because this is the ingredients. And I went over what's in the vial. Number one, the vaccine will give you the virus. No, the vaccine has a chip in it. It does not. The vaccine has aborted fetal tissue in it. And no. So that's a no, no, and no. Remember, I walked you through not only the ingredients to the vaccine, messenger RNA protein instructions, surrounded by the lipid fat layer, which is a, a layer of buffers or salts that do various things like control the stability, control the pH, control the temperature, water, lab table sugar. Now, what's not in it? No preservatives, no antibiotics, no adjuvants, and no virus. Remember, this is a protein with the instructions for the spike protein. Another concern, people with autoimmune diseases should not take it. That's actually not the recommendation. The current CDC recommendation is that people who have underlying autoimmune diseases or who are taking immunosuppressive medications, the recommendation is to receive the vaccine because of the risk and benefits. In medicine, we always weigh the risk and benefits. What's riskier? So it's determined that the risk of you of a person with an autoimmune disease getting the coronavirus disease far outweighs the risk of the vaccine. So it is recommended that people with autoimmune diseases or taking immunosuppressive medications do receive the vaccine. Another concern or question, I won't need the vaccine since I already had coronavirus. That's incorrect as far as CDC recommendation. If you've already had the coronavirus, remember, those antibodies to the natural disease will not last forever. It's thought that they will last anywhere from three to six months. So when those antibodies leave a person's system after having the true natural disease, you're at risk again for, you know, getting the coronavirus disease again. So it is currently recommended to go ahead and take the vaccine after about a three-month period from your diagnosis. The vaccine causes infertility. That's incorrect and false as well because the vaccine is a protein that sits inside of the cytoplasm or the white part of the egg. It does not interact at all with the nucleus where the DNA is housed. And also there have been a number of women that have been vaccinated who have been pregnant. There have been no miscarriages to date as the cause of the messenger RNA vaccine. So no, it does not cause infertility. Persons with allergies should not receive it. 
This is a two-part recommendation. The first part of the recommendation is that if there's a person with a historical history of having received epinephrine for a severe reaction or carries an epinephrine pin because you have a history of anaphylaxis or severe allergies, it is recommended that you can take the vaccine under extreme precaution. Those precautions would be carry your EpiPen with you. And I encourage everyone to, if you have an EpiPen, to look at the expiration date before you go take the vaccine. Make sure you alert the clinical staff where you're receiving the vaccine and let them know you're, you're a person who has an EpiPen, you suffer from severe allergies, or you may have had a severe allergy in the past because you need to be monitored greater than 30 minutes. And the second part of the recommendation is that if a person, whether they've had a history or not, but if a person receives dose one and they suffers a severe, they do suffer a severe allergy, meaning they're hospitalized or they receive the EpiPen, whatever the case may be, if they suffer a severe reaction, not the local arm pain or itchiness reaction, I mean severe hospitalization use of EpiPen. If they suffer that particular reaction with dose one, then they do not receive dose two. Okay, so two parts to the allergy recommendation. You can receive dose one if you have a history, but you must do it under extreme precaution. However, if a person receives dose one and does experience a severe allergic reaction where they're hospitalized and receive epinephrine, then you do not go back for dose two. And just to put how rare this is into context, anaphylaxis is rare, um, not only in the general population, but even in the clinical trials. So over the 70,000 volunteers, there were not any cases of severe allergic reactions. However, now that we have over 65 million people vaccinated, the case rate is two and a half cases per every million people for the Moderna vaccine, and then four and a half cases per million people for the Pfizer vaccine. So it's something that you should know, especially if you're a person who has that history of a anaphylaxis or severe reaction. Although it's rare, the current recommendation is that you can receive the vaccine under precaution. Another myth, the vaccine is causing life-threatening side effects. That's incorrect. I talked with you about the side effects. They are not life-threatening. The most common ones are all local site pain um, or headache or maybe fever and chills, but they are not life-threatening effects in people. And when we get to the q and I'll walk you through my own personal side effects for dose one and two as well. Should I medicate before taking the vaccine? No, you should not. Medication prior to the vaccine with like your Tylenol or um, non-steroidal will cause the immune system to be weakened or dampened. You want a full robust active immune response after you take the vaccine. So it's not advised to medicate before taking the vaccine. However, you can take something afterwards. So you can take something if you have severe arm pain and you can't work or if you have a headache or fever then yes, it's okay to take something. Will the vaccine work on new strains or variants? Currently, that answer is yes, and that's actually the good news. The good news is that the companies have been testing all of the new variants, including the new U.S. variants. They've been testing, and so far the answer is yes. The second part to this answer is that although the antibodies are built, the, there is an immune response, you will not get the same efficacy of like 94, 95%. However, at this point, there is a high enough threshold where the antibodies are high enough that the answer is yes, the vaccine does work on the new variants. And then both companies are planning and have already started not only testing all of the variants, but creating a booster 
in case we may need a booster later on down the line? Will the vaccine keep me from infecting others? This is an answer that is going to change the more time we have, meaning the more people that we get vaccinated and able to um, look at their serology or look at how long the antibodies are lasting. Right now, with the clinical trial data, the answer was no, it will not keep you from infecting others. However, the latest data on whether or not the vaccine will keep you from infecting others is a probable yes. And that's from the um, Dr. Fauci's group and other scientific experts. Now that we have greater than 65 million people um, vaccinated, we can start answering some of these questions, especially as time goes along. So they really think now that this may actually be a yes, and that not only uh, will you be protected from serious coronavirus disease, but that you may have a low enough viral load that it may be able to not transmit it to others. But stay tuned for that answer, because again, as time goes on, as more people get vaccinated and we're able to see the data, we'll be able to answer that question definitively. How long does the vaccine last? Right now, that's another answer that we need time. Right now, Moderna is saying one year. And again, the longer time, the more people get vaccinated, we'll be able to see what the antibodies are doing and whether or not we'll need a booster in a year or so. But right now, that's a that's kind of an unknown confirmation at this point. Kids will not need to get vaccinated. Kids at some point will need to get vaccinated. The way clinical trials work in the United States, adults go first. Once the safety and efficacy is established and confirmed to be safe and effective, then special populations will begin and start enrolling in the clinical trials. So what just happened recently for Moderna and Pfizer, Moderna just completed enrollment for kids 12 to 17, and Pfizer just completed enrollment for kids 12 to 15. And so they, they will complete their clinical trials probably early fall, and then we'll start seeing the data for kids. And then we'll know what the safety and efficacy is, and kids will need to get vaccinated. Does the vaccine cause Bell's palsy? No, it does not cause Bell's palsy, although there were people in the clinical trials who did get Bell's palsy. And Bell's palsy is a neurological, a rare neurological and temporary paralysis or weakness of one half of the face. And there were 70,000 volunteers plus in the two clinical trials. Eight people between those two trials later on were later diagnosed with Bell's palsy. Seven of those eight were in the vaccine group. However, it's such a rare phenomenon, and it does occur in the general population for people who are not in clinical trials. So it occurs at a rate in the general population of about 15 to 20 per 100,000. And so in the case of the two vaccines, that's actually lower than the general population. So this is not a side effect. It just happens to be a rare disease that occurs in the general population, and eight people out of the 70,000 did happen to be diagnosed with Bell palsy, but lower than the general population rate. I'm going to remind you that we need to really be patient. The only way we're going to defeat the pandemic and end the pandemic is if we all work together by continuing to wash our hands, wear our mask, keep our distance of six feet or greater, reminder to not gather in large groups, Remind yourself to include ventilation where you can, if possible, and, you know, advocate for each other, advocate for your family members to negotiate the complex system that we have, but also be patient and manage your expectations. There is light at the end of the tunnel. We will end the pandemic, but it will take all of us working together. 
I want to thank uh, Melissa and Amanda and Roosevelt University for inviting me today and thank all of you for listening. Thank you so thank much, Dr. Marshall. That was so informative, so compelling. And I have to say, I, I'm personally grateful that you chose this lane and that you created this presentation and are sharing this information with us and with our communities. This is really helpful. Um, we are close to the end of our time, but I, unfortunately, you proactively addressed most of the questions coming in. There are a couple here, though, if you have a few moments that I'd like to ask you. So first question is, aside from the differences in effectiveness, how safe is J&J's adenoviral vector vaccine compared to Moderna and Pfizer's mRNA vaccine? And if J&J is approved for emergency use, would you please do another video? Most definitely. I'm going to hold that question because, because it's not approved. I hate to speak on that answer. However, I will be continuing to update the slides as more and more vaccines get reviewed and are approved. So remember, J&J will be set to go under review on Friday, February 26th. In the case they do get the approval stamp, I will add to the presentation with not only the mechanism, but all of the data that I shared for Moderna, I'll share because it's a different technology than the two that we happen to have approved right now. Understood, so more to come. So the last question I wanna ask is what other measures should leaders implement to further gain the trust of these communities? And the questioner says, I haven't noticed a massive effort in this area and there doesn't seem to be any change in hesitancy. Yeah, I've been speaking all over the US and unfortunately, I've done this presentation the least amount of times in Illinois or Chicago in general. And I noticed this week they were actually last on the list in vaccine rate per capita, which is quite sad. But I do think we need our leaders in the community, our churches, our schools, our community organizations, fraternities and sororities to reach out to communities of color because it's known and, you know, it's, it's studies that show that communities of color um, will listen to and trust the people that most likely look like them. And so that was one of the reasons I created this because I knew there would be a problem with vaccine hesitancy. So my job is to reach as many people that I can. That's why I really appreciate you guys um, inviting me here today. And you know, one person can tell another person, I am available to present to any other groups. Melissa has my email and you can pretty much share my email as well, but I am available. I. You remember, I started this talk for family members and, you know, it has been created. And now I've been talking to people all over the U.S. I have one last question for you, Dr. Marshall. And I know that you participated in the clinical trial and you got the placebo. Have you received your immunization yet? I did. I was in Moderna clinical trial. And what Moderna and Pfizer offered to the volunteers was to become unblinded, to find out which arm we're in. I knew after dose one, but I 99% was sure after dose two of the placebo that I did not get the vaccine. So I was willing and ready to be unblinded to find out which group I was in. And I was in the placebo group and then I elected to receive the vaccine. I have received both dose one and dose two. So just to speak on side effects real quickly, my first dose, I had mild, very mild arm pain on day one and then a irritable itchiness that occurred starting from like day five, six, and seven. And I didn't treat anything. I didn't take anything because it was really mild and it wasn't um, disrupting anything. However, the second dose, I was true to the clinical studies and that they say the second dose gives you the more side effects. And that's actually what occurred with me. 
So I did have a headache. I had chills. I had fever and body aches. Like I could barely walk. So that lasted about two and a half days. And I did take something. I took Tylenol. But it was well worth the risk because the risk of getting coronavirus disease itself is unknown. And you don't know, there, there have been healthy people that end up in the hospital and end up on the ventilator. And, you know, the benefit of the vaccine far outweighs the risk of me getting the coronavirus. But thank you for that question. Absolutely. And with that, we're out of time. Dr. Marshall, thank you so much for this great discussion and for giving us so much information about COVID-19, its disproportionate effect of, on communities of color and how the vaccines work. It's really appreciated. And I also want to thank our audience for joining us today. Thank you. This concludes our third of four discussions on the COVID-19 vaccine. Tune in next week, Wednesday, March 3rd from noon to one. We'll be talking with pharmacy faculty, Dr. Jason Allegro, about his experiences as an infectious disease specialist pharmacist during the pandemic. You can find this session and every session in our discussion series on the RU podcast and Justice for All. Thank you and see you next week. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.